Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Country Vine for March 14th, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Oh, excited to have tonight's show. We're going to have a guest uh, in about 20 minutes, Dr. Kristen Dumay, um, a religion and history professor um, from Calvin University, and she has a new book out called Jesus and John Wayne, um, and it is a very interesting read about um, evangelical um, uh, Christians and politics and kind of a recent history, even, you know, going back almost a mid-century, uh, and looking at the um, evolution of evangelical Christians and how the politics has kind of transformed into something that's not exactly um, what you might think in the New Testament. But we'll let Dr. Dumay um, explain that better in about 20 minutes. But until then, uh, we've got some political topics. And one that we're going to start off with, which is very sad, was last week a very tragic event happened in and around Metro Atlanta um, at multiple locations. Uh, eight people died shootings. Six of the victims were Asian Americans. Um, and just, you know, a tragic situation. Uh, the perpetrator, which I think it was said, your murders speak louder than your words. You know, he said that it wasn't racially motivated, although when six victims are all of one race, that that's um, – you know, says something in itself. And even if it wasn't, I think President Biden saying that there's still way too much um, Asian hate crimes that have happened in the past year since the coronavirus pandemic has happened because people are incorrectly uh, blaming um, Asian people uh, for something that's affected people regardless of race, regardless of natural origin all across our planet. Um, and so it kind of brought a light onto it, regardless of what this, you know, suspected murderer um, says. Uh, Catherine, um, kind of were your thoughts? I mean, I know some of it happened in Atlanta and some in Cherokee County, which is northwest of Atlanta, for those not in Georgia. Well, I mean, it's heartbreaking um, for the families and friends and the community, the Asian uh, community in Atlanta. It's heartbreaking. Um, and I, I, I just am, I, I, you know, I believe, I, you have to believe what this man says, but, you know, he passed a number of uh, other uh, spas that he, where he could have shot people that didn't have as many Asian uh, workers as the ones he chose. So uh, it's hard to accept that claim. Um, 
I think we saw some really uh, unfortunate messaging from some of our police uh, chief, one police chief in particular, um, who did take a good, strong beating on social media and on network television about it, about some of the comments that he made. Um, it's just, you know, it's heartbreaking to, in any, whatever the circumstances, for eight people to be shot um, and then, you know, discover, finding out after the fact that some of these people had no family here. Um, it was difficult to locate next of kin and friends. So it's a very sad story. And um, I, I'm just, I've been heartbroken for, like I said, for their friends, family and community all week. And uh, I hope that we're able to, I hope they're able to convict the guy and, um, and find some resolution. And hopefully this, like you said, starts a conversation about um, hate crimes and particularly aimed at um, Asian Americans, but also at all um, all people of color and, uh, well, of everyone. I mean, hate crimes are hate crimes. Uh, so, uh, like I said, it's just heartbreaking. Very sad week. Yeah. Yeah, Tim, your thoughts on the events of, I guess, mid to late last week in Atlanta? Well, of course, it was a very, very sad thing. It just, like, here we go again, you know. It, it on and on and on and on, and questions abound in this case. And the the man was taken, you know, without incident, so he will be doing some talking and already has been, but um, still the questions remain, um, is he just a nut? Um, six of the eight were Asian, seven of the eight were female, so is this a hate crime? Which is very, very difficult to prove, by the way. He had to have said something or, you know, something that they have concrete to prove, and, and he's denied that it is. Is it based on gender? There's a possibility. Is it is it what he said that that he blames them for tempting him to sin? You know, um, which which was basically his story, and, and is his story believable? Uh, those are things that we'll be answering in coming days, and including. Uh, you know, the, the issue of guns comes up again. How was he able to so easily get a, a a weapon, apparently just a few hours before he used that same weapon in this crime? Uh, so there's there's going to be a lot of discussion about this in coming days. I know the president, uh, when he was coming down here, was not expecting to be talking about something like that, but he had to actually change his itinerary uh, so so that, he, you, you know, he could uh, discuss it with local leaders. So. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, so this tragic event, he was coming, so he had to attend to that because it was a, probably an international story, not just a national story. And, and you know, <laughs> really, if you took this guy at, at, at face value, oh, it, it's my sex addiction, that's still not any kind of defense because you're blaming people that uh, that were, you know, really victims in this industry. I'm not so sure that a lot of people dream of working in a massage parlor in the sex work industry. I, I don't know that that's anybody's real dream, and, and these women may have been a bit helpless in having to work in this industry, and he's blaming them for his shortcomings, which, you know, is murdering anyone a justification uh for dealing with your problem that you see. I mean, you know, it, it, it just so convoluted. I mean, there's just going to be no defense for that. I mean, they, they have video. It's, it's pretty clear cut. It's him and, and hate crime or not. It, it's eight murders. Um, you know, I, I don't know mm -hmm. what type of, uh, if it will be a capital murder case, um, whatever it may be, he's going to get a, extreme maximum sentence whatever the you know the DA and I guess in Fulton and in Cherokee County asked for and I don't know if they'll combine the cases or how they do that um, I don't have that level of legal degree I don't have one at all but but it just seems like he's in such legal turmoil if he says it was this or he says it with that that's not going to get him any real latitude judicially um, Catherine do you think he's blaming another set of victims with his defense, which is not a defense? Well, I hesitate to call them victims. Uh, the, I well, mean, they're victims of the murder, victims, for sure. Victims yeah. of, of the murder, but I, I hesitate to call whatever they were doing in their jobs. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what they did. I, um. And I also, I, ha I have a question. Obviously, we don't know the answer, but I'm just going to throw this question out here. When this first re was reported, um, I was watching the news that day pretty much nonstop and listening to the radio. And um, it, they kept referring to the aromatherapy spa and the, t the spa across the street and the spa in um, wherever it was, in X. Not at Eckworth, wherever it was, the other one. But pretty quickly, they talking about massage parlors, and I mean these businesses are their signs say spa. So I don't. I, I'm just curious how we went from spas to massage parlors, um, and I think there's a lot of assumptions about what goes on in um, those businesses i don't know i've never been to them um and i've actually never talked to anybody that's been to them um so i don't know if those if the women that were killed were you know uh estheticians who provided massages and you know in ordinary circumstances of perfectly above board or not i don't know and so i hesitate to uh, they they may have chosen those jobs. They may not have been necessarily trafficked or working under duress. I don't know. So let's yeah, I, I, and it may be. I mean, maybe they wanted to be the greatest 
you know, masseuse ever, and I don't know about these establishments either. Um, I, it's kind of one of those things that somebody knew a whole lot about it, and, and it was um, what everybody fears. It, it might be kind of incriminating anyway. Um, it, it's just a, a world that I'm sure some will have a lot of knowledge of, and maybe, you know, people in the media have gotten that information from them, and people know. I think that they said that this uh, – perpetrator of the crimes had frequented uh, these particular places. So in his mind, he knew what he thought they were. I mean, I, I don't know. Once again, that's where the investigators come in. Tim, anything you'd like to add before we move um, to our next topic? Well, yeah, I know this is going to branch off into a lot of discussion about a lot of different things around the country, from guns to human trafficking to the the sex trade, uh, but but what we all have to remember, and, and I hope everyone does, is that you know eight people have been murdered, and that guy did it, and that's the first thing he he needs to be held accountable for those eight murders and prosecuted to the full extent of the law, and and hopefully. Uh, to jail never to be heard from again. That has to happen first. Yeah. I mean, and you're right. There's He bought the guns that day, and somebody pointed out, hey, in Georgia, we won't be able to vote the same day that you register, but you can buy a gun and, and do that. And then, I mean, there is could be the, the angle where people could be some human trafficking um just so many things, and, and but we do know this. I think somebody put the statistic up: um, violence against Asian Americans up like 150 percent in the past year. And so, while if this wasn't a problem, there are plenty, plenty, unfortunate of other problems, particularly against older Asian people. And that was shown on the Daily Show several weeks ago. Um, I think Ronnie Chang, you know, they did it in a humorous way, which is very difficult to do, but they pointed out how much increase against Asian Americans there's been. Um, even if this is not a part of that narrative, that narrative still needed to be shared, so hopefully that number can go down to zero where it needs to be. Um, well, let's kind of change topics a little bit and get back to our core of electoral politics and yesterday, of course, Louisiana, when they're not involved in federal elections like, um, you know, president where they have to vote on Tuesday, they vote on Saturday. Um, and so they had their special elections for, I believe, the second and the fifth congressional districts. One kind of ties parts of New Orleans with parts of Baton Rouge, and, one, and that was Cedric Richmond um, who let, vacated that seat to – uh, work in the Biden administration, and then Luke Letlow, who had just won his congressional seat up in the northern, uh, the northeastern part of the state, uh, passed away tragically of uh, COVID-19. He was 41 years old, and so that's, uh, you know, kind of telling you it's not all, you know, 81-year-olds that die. It's, it's people that look, like I saw pictures of him, look, you know, very healthy and vibrant at 41 tragically died of this disease, they were having to um, replace uh, him in Congress. Um, and let's go ahead and deal with his seat first since that, you know, had a resolution. It had a result. His um, widow, 
Julia Letlow. She ran. There were other contenders in the uh, race, but she won with like 64% of the vote. Um, Tim, what was your thoughts on how she won this seat without a runoff? Was very impressive, actually, and she had the endorsements of every big name Republican you can think of: Trump, Pence, uh, all the congressional delegation, pretty much from Louisiana, uh, j- just about every big name Republican you can think of. So the only question was: Was she going to uh, make fifty percent in this jungle type primary uh, because they're still were a lot of minor Republicans, maybe 12 or 13, that were running, and only one Democrat in the race. Uh, And the hope was, uh, among the Democrats, that she would be held below 50 percent, but that that just wasn't going to happen. She actually got 64.9 percent, and I believe the Democrat in the race got 27.8, which is about the max that the the 30 to 35 percent is about the match that the Democrats can pull. Um, So, you you know, it's a culmination of what was a a tragic story. Her husband died, you know, as you mentioned, of the COVID five days before he was to be sworn in, as a matter of fact. Um, I I know that, that he had been one who, you know, had not, uh, practice social distancing, wearing a mask, stuff like that. And that, that was another issue unto itself. But it's tragic that the man passed. And uh, she had always promised him that she would probably run for office someday. And he had strongly encouraged her to do so. And so now she takes her place in, in Congress as an educator, uh, as we discussed before we went on the air. So... Uh, that's a very safe district for Republicans. Yes, uh, Catherine, your thoughts on the election of Julia Letlow to Congress? Well, I don't think it was a surprise. I, you know, I think, like Tim said, that she had a lot of support, and uh, it sounds like maybe she'll be a, uh, you know, she's educated and um, she had a lot of support from her husband. So let's hope that she's. She serves the people of Louisiana well. Yeah, and she did a, um, a bio video, which is very popular. I mean, it, it's it's pretty easy when you can cut the video, put it on the Internet, and people that want to watch that video, um, even if it's two and a half minutes, which is a kind of a common uh, rough time for those things. She has this video, and it talks about, of course, overcoming you know, the loss of her husband, raising her two children. But she says, you know, I've always been a working mother. I've been educated, a Ph.D. from University of South Florida. She was able to run a different kind of race than a lot of Republicans have, certainly in primaries. We'll pick that back up, but we're excited right now to bring on to the kudzu vine Dr. Kristen Dumay. Welcome, Dr. Dumay. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes. Well, Dr. DeMay, before we get into your new book, which we're excited about, just kind of give us some background uh, for our listeners about your uh, work in life. Sure. I'm a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. 
I grew up in Iowa in a conservative Christian community and uh, actually lived in the South for a brief time in Tallahassee, Florida, and uh, lived in Germany for a time and then ended up studying American religious history and gender at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, And uh, my first book is on the history of Christian feminism, and then Jesus and John Wayne is my second book. Yes. Well, kind of tell us, uh, why did you decide to write the book, Jesus and John Wayne? Sure. It was actually students at Calvin University who brought to my attention really some of the, the popular Christian books that end up being at the heart of Jesus and John Wayne. And this was more than 15 years ago. Uh, They introduced me to John Eldridge's Wild at Heart after I had given a lecture on Teddy Roosevelt uh, because they pointed out to me that this um, enormously popular book on Christian masculinity uh, opened with a quote from Teddy Roosevelt and went on to paint a very militaristic and militant conception of what it meant to be a Christian man. And so I was fascinated by this. This was in the early years of the Iraq War and we saw all this survey data coming our way that white evangelicals were far more supportive of the Iraq war, of preemptive war in general, condoning the use of torture. And so I just uh, asked, you know, what might one have to do with the other, this very militant foreign policy, aggressive foreign policy, and this very militant conception of Christian masculinity. Yes. And in your book, and I've listened to the entire um, a book, And there's a melding kind of of evangelical Christianity and the Republican Party and its politics over the past 40 to 50 years. Do you think that's more detrimental to the growth of Christianity or holding, you know, numbers of Christians in America or to Republican electoral politics? Oh, that's a tough question. I'm I'm not sure uh, in terms of. Uh, kind of holding it back, I think it's just really been a symbiotic relationship. And uh, I guess uh, I've seen it more as mutually beneficial, perhaps in terms of uh, of influence and in terms of power. In terms of raw numbers, uh, I think that, that's kind of harder to calculate. Uh, but certainly, you know, conservative evangelicals have um, helped build the modern Republican Party. I really push back against commentators who want to suggest that somehow you know, the story of evangelicals in politics is one of, of politics hijacking the evangelical faith. I, I think that history does not bear that out. Instead, uh, evangelicals and other conservative Christians really did help build the modern political or the modern Republican Party. And um, at the same time, yes, uh, in, in recent decades, certainly, uh, evangelical Christians who find that they do not align with conservative Republican politics do often end up leaving evangelicalism because they feel like they, they just can't fit in those spaces. Yes, and that's what I've kind of seen is a lot of more progressive voters, middle-of-the-road voters that might reject Republican politics when the sermon becomes all about that they leave the flock, so to speak, and Christianity's numbers in America are going down, and could Christianity grow again if they would uh, you know, subscribe to other tenets of the New Testament that talk about you know, love thy neighbor as yourself and, and give unto others? Yeah, you know, I think it's important not to conflate American Christianity with white evangelicalism. You know, even though white evangelicals will often present themselves as the, the, the true Christianity, um, 
in true version of American Christianity. There are a lot of um, of Christian traditions in this country that um, that do embrace a more kind of social justice tradition that do put a lot more emphasis on love your neighbor uh, and and again working for justice. And so you know African American Protestants and the Democratic Party and um, you know, Latino Protestants that will, will, you see a little bit more variation there, but there, and then you have, you know, mainline and certainly, you know, progressive and liberal, um, uh, Christian movements, white Christian movements as well. So there, there is variation. Uh, but I do think that some, um, some evangelicals who, who, who grow, um, troubled by this alignment, this political alignment of their faith and the Republican Party, don't just uh, wander into a more progressive religious tradition, but some of them end up walking away from Christianity itself. And so that could also be um, uh, a factor at play. Yes. Well, I'm going to kind of go out of order since you mentioned uh, the Christian left and African-American theology. And uh, in Georgia, Raphael Warnock, the, the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, got elected to the U.S. Senate. Um, have you heard how a lot of white evangelical ministers are viewing the election of Raphael Warnock? Yeah. Uh, so in the circles that I kind of keep tabs on, I don't actually see much conversation around that, that um, there there have been some pretty um, – um, pretty stark divisions and kind of boundaries drawn between conservative white evangelicalism and um, black Protestantism and certainly the prophetic tradition within black Protestantism. That kind of seems like the other. That's, um, that's not something that they actively engage or, you know, when, when I, I talk with folks in, in uh, you know, political strategists and so on who say, well, if, if we use this faith language, this progressive faith language, uh, we're going to be able to reach across, you know, this difference and appeal to white evangelicals. And that's actually not really how this works. Uh, conservative white evangelicals have, have really kind of built walls uh, and, and are very suspicious of this kind of um, prophetic Christianity of progressive, you know, they, they'll derive social justice warriors. And so uh, even though you use the language of Christianity and even though you're, you're quoting the Bible, it doesn't necessarily translate, and it doesn't appeal across this 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 gulf. And, and that was the case for Barack Obama during his presidency as well. That um, it, it takes more than just um, Bible verses and rhetoric to reach across this divide. Yes. Um, well, let me ask another question. You, uh, I know that your uh, undergraduate education happened at Dortch College, and. Iowa, and I believe your father was a professor there. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. He was a theology professor. Yes, and I guess in the part of, in the campaign in 2016 leading up to the Iowa caucus, uh, Donald Trump spoke at Dortch College and made his famous "I could shoot someone in Times Square," and you know, some huge a portion of the Republican electorate uh, couldn't care. Um, what was the reaction of students and faculty and administration at Dortch College that Donald Trump used the university to make that statement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and not lose any supporters was the quote. So I was not actually there at the time. I was watching the event as it streamed. Um, but I had, I had a lot of friends who were there. And uh, you know, most of the, the faculty and students, 
from the college itself were, were not on board with Trump. Um, and, and when I watched it, too, I thought, he doesn't know where he is. He's thinking that this is a right-wing evangelical college. That's not what Dort is. Um, this is, this is going to fall flat. Uh, and, and many, um, again, professors and, and, and students were, were just not on board. That said, if you look at Sioux County, the county in which Dort sits, uh, you know, they ended up voting for Trump uh, come uh, November 2016 in numbers greater than 81%. And so, um, you know, in the end, the support was there. But um, I think the enthusiasm in the crowd was largely at that time from other folks who had come to the college from the surrounding area, um, it's a very rural area, and there were a lot of people who came into town just for that event. Yes, and then I kind of want to uh, piggyback on that question and say, you know, you've studied uh, evangelicals, you know, throughout the recent history and then how they've melded into not only the Republican Party but Donald Trump. Is there anything that he could do? Um, since he could shoot people on Fifth Avenue, I'm sorry I got my uh, Times Square and Fifth Avenue wrong. Um, is there anything that he can do to lose um, conservative evangelicals at this point? Hmm. You know, I think early on, if he had not uh, come out as staunchly pro-life, it would have been a lot harder for evangelicals to embrace him. So, so that was significant. Uh, that said, you know, at the time, every Republican candidate was staunchly pro-life, and, and, and still they, they ended up um, choosing Trump. Um, but now, uh, among his stalwart evangelical base, which is not all evangelicals, but among his base, it's, it's hard to see what would shake them loose at this point after the last four-plus years. Um, that said, I, I wonder a bit about his hold on that base going forward, because one of the things that they loved about him was his power, right? He was their ultimate fighting champion. He was the man who was going to do what needed to be done. He was not constrained by uh, traditional Christian virtue. And for that reason, he was, he was, he was, he was their man. He was their strong man. And he's out of office now. He doesn't wield that power. For four years, he did, and he could grant them special favors, and he, he could come through on that, that offer to protect Christianity and to, to, to elevate their status. He doesn't have that power anymore, so I'm watching to see you know, how long this loyalty remains when he no longer um, has that power to exercise on their behalf. Yes, it would be interesting to see what happens to this coalition in 2024. Um, Another uh, question, you go back all the way to, you know, Billy Graham's early days, and you talk about some of the um, really positive aspects of Billy Graham with, you know, tearing down the rope and desegregating um, his revivals, and he did have positive contact with Dr. King. Then you talk later about Franklin Graham. Where exactly did Franklin Graham kind of – in some ways, to me, go astray from his father, Billy Graham, and become a different kind of religious leader than his father's tradition, which was more inclusive. Yeah, you know, first I'd complicate that picture of Billy Graham just a bit because, uh, yes, he he did some good things in terms of, uh, you know, civil rights up to a point. Uh, And then he he kind of um, halted and said, enough is enough. Uh, 
and later in the 1960s, he was quite critical of the direction that the civil rights movement was going. He was, you know, a proponent of kind of law and order politics and, um, and a strong supporter of the Republican Party. Uh, even though in the wake of Watergate, he did end up kind of stepping back from politics and, uh, and, 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 and offering a kind of warning to other folks uh, in the evangelical world, a warning that most did not heed, including, uh, it seems, his own son. Uh, so where did his son go astray? Um, I mean, I've read his biography, and, and uh, he, he's an, an interesting character. Um, I, in some ways, he's, he's continuing in the, the tradition of his, uh, of his dad's kind of earlier existence, when he was much more political and when he was very ambitious and very much seeking power, you know, seeking power in order to do what he thought was good in order to evangelize, in order to, um, you know, uh, kind of redeem Christian America and defend Christian America. And, and so in some ways, his son isn't all that different from the earlier iteration of Billy Graham. Yes, I just kind of – I don't see a lot of positives come out of Franklin Graham. I think there are aspects uh, of Billy. It's kind of like something good and nothing good. Uh, so, no, that's fair. Uh, that, that's, that's fair. And, yeah, and, you know, I think Franklin, too, he um, – he has he has a platform of Facebook, so we can we can kind of you know it, which is enormously popular in the evangelical. I, I think it often kind of runs beneath the radar of of the media and so on. But he has this kind of direct uh, access to just ordinary evangelicals, and so I can see him say something on Facebook, and within hours, I I hear echoes of it on other people's Facebook uh, feeds, right, evangelicals, and I hear evangelicals talking in exactly his language. So he is very influential in, in that respect. And, yes, definitely less, um, um, I, I, I don't know, um, or, or um, maybe more radical than his dad, certainly as his dad um, kind, of, uh, kind of stepped back from that extreme partisanship and did become more measured in his later decades. Yes, and I think he understood when Barack Obama was becoming president that it was good to go ahead and do what he had done with every president and meet with him and pray with him and whatnot. He he kind of got the bigger picture that Franklin misses yeah. uh, for whatever reason. And by the way, if folks that hadn't you know read or listened to your book, you do an incredible job talking about what we can't condense in Billy Graham and Franklin Graham's life just in this short little question about him. So. Yeah. Read the book, and you'll get much more. <laughs> um, well, an, a, another que- another uh, aspect, you talked a lot about the role of guns in, in uh, current evangelical um, thought, if you will, and, and it's not a, 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 you know, a necessary fit. I, I think back to a popular culture. Uh, Lenny Kravitz, on his first album, ra- wrote a song called Empty Hands. And, and he says, you know, he's talking about Christ, and he came into in town with nothing in his hands. No violence made his plans. And, and I think of that Christ, and yet guns and, and, and Second Amendment rights has become such a part of Republican politics. How did Republicans take the Christ from the New Testament and morph it into what they uh, believe in their politics today? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. And when I when I look at this history, I mean, I, I came to see just how often in the early Cold War era, 
this a kind of um, Christian masculinity was promoted that that elevated the the man's role as protector. It is man's God-given duty to protect faith, family, and nation. And again, in the early Cold War era, communism was a great threat. Communism was anti-God, anti-family, and anti-American. And so all the things that conservative evangelicals held dear. And, uh, and, and so it was up to men. God filled men with testosterone so that they had the aggression, the strength to defend uh, Christian America. And then feminism came along and the anti-war movement. And, and evangelicals increasingly felt that they were the faithful remnant that could uphold true Christianity and true American masculinity to defend Christian America. And you can just kind of see that develop in the context, especially over against the, the anti-war movement. And so, so guns are a key part. This is, this is real defense and this is a military defense. And then uh, later this folds into kind of law enforcement as well in terms of law and order politics. And it's also caught up in this mystique, this mystique of you know, the West, the, the, the cowboy hero, the righteous man who's going to bring order through violence if necessary, uh, right, righteous violence. And so, so it's, it's not kind of um, adherent to the Second Amendment. It's very much a part of this, this core identity of what it is to be a Christian man and what it is to be a strong American man. And, and that just comes together and it becomes extremely powerful. So that does move to the core of, of their identity, this idea of Christian masculinity, this militant masculinity, but then it ends up really changing their conception of Jesus himself. Jesus of the Gospels becomes a warrior Christ who has a bloody sword and charges into battle. Yes, and, and you mentioned, of course, so much about you know the patriarchy and, and, and the man is the head of the household and he should run for office and, and make the leadership decisions. And then in 2008, and you, you do a good job of attending to this, Sarah Palin comes on the scene, and religious conservatives are all into her. And not only – of course, you can speak to Sarah Palin, but since then, in the past 12 years, that's become kind of the archetype of a lot of conservative politics here in Georgia – Unfortunately, we have Marjorie Taylor Greene. South Dakota has uh, Christy Noem, uh, Colorado Lauren Boebert, and I think there's more people that would love to um, fall in that archetype of Sarah Palin. How does this powerful, you know, woman that takes electoral power but still has that religious right or certainly right-wing political bent fit into this narrative? Yeah, women have always supported this this patriarchal ideology, right? It, it, it couldn't really persist as long as it has if women also aren't buying into it and if all, women also aren't, uh, you know, white Christian women aren't um, feeling like they're getting something out of it, um, uh, along with, for many, you know, believe that is the right, the Christian, the obedient thing to be doing. Um, but I think that even before Sarah Palin, uh, an important precursor would be to look at Phyllis Schlafly. Although she was a Catholic, I kind of consider her almost an honorary evangelical, and she played such an important role in kind of um, uh, presenting a Christian womanhood 
that is uh, works in tandem with this this white patriarchal authority. And so it's up to women to be very feminine because you don't want to be feminist to um, support the men in their work and their all important work and and really to create space for them to do that. And and again, you do that through not through rejecting your femininity, but by embracing your femininity, your sexuality, and always kind of, you know, uh, supporting men in power. And, and then you have Sarah Palin come along and, um, I mean, she she was just such such a charismatic figure because she was powerful politically, but she she wielded that power in a very feminine way, in a in a way that reaffirmed many of uh, conservative Christians' values of what women ought to do and be. Even though she had this political power as governor, she was also very beautiful, formal, former beauty queen. That's really important, important part of this picture. She was a mom. She was a mom of several children, including one with Down syndrome. And so she kind of checked all of these boxes, and she supported uh, the religious right. She supported this uh, this political system, and she was so um, she was key in doing that because she, in some ways, kind of diffused uh, feminist opposition to the religious right, feminist opposition to Republican politics. And so, so she was actually this, this brilliant figure who could um, kind of um, take the, the religious, the leadership of the religious right, like in in a new direction. And, and I do think she was underestimated. Um, it, it, what she represented was underestimated at the time. Her appeal, how, how she was able to, um, to kind of walk this line and how she did kind of standard for people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Christy Nome, also all very feminine. I mean, if you watch the Republican um, National Convention and just look at the model of kind of um, Republican femininity, hyper femininity, kind of mirroring Fox News femininity, and that if you present yourself in such a way and reinforce particular values, those are the women who, like Phyllis Schlafly, can, in fact, wield considerable power. Now, they can at the state level. They can in, in Congress. I'm curious to see if that would also fly at the level of, of the, the presidency and it, or, or if there's a limit to that. But I'm, I'm really curious what 2024 holds for us. Yes. Well, thinking even beyond 2024, and this will be my final you know, content question, let's say that demographic trends stay the same. The country becomes more diverse, so there's less white, so they can't have as much white evangelicals. Um, evangelicals are you know shrink as a percentage of the population and one i think thing one more thing i think we have to take into consideration is pretty much everybody's allowed to vote a lot of these voter restriction um laws don't come into to being or they don't have the impact that people think and so mm-hmm. therefore this is a less uh voting power for this block what do they do if they don't have power and they're a clear minority yeah. I mean, the voter suppression is key there, right? Um, because uh, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's always, it puts a historian in an awkward position to try to um, predict the future, but I'll try. Um, I mean, w- what we've seen is in the past when conservative evangelicals have been um, or, or certainly felt marginalized, have, have not um, held the reins of power, they have tended to become more um, 
reactionary and to have to mobilize that they uh, their fundraising increases they actually kind of see this pendulum swing back and forth when they aren't in the white house that's when they end up the organizations the cash is flowing and the and again money is really important here um, as part of this this narrative of political power and they're able to um, wield power kind of outsized power because of their organization because of their money and because of their kind of lockstep unity whereas many progressive christians or members of the religious left generally or even just the democratic party a much more kind of diverse coalition and um, doesn't have the same kind of lockstep politics so pure numbers isn't the only thing we have to look at Um, but i do think we have to consider voter suppression and we have to um, consider the resiliency of our democratic institutions because there are anti-democratic impulses within conservative evangelicalism and within the religious right more broadly. And so that is something that, that we do need to um, uh, continue to watch, I think. Yes. Well, I'm going to leave uh, our listeners with a final question for you. If they've listened to you and they want to read more, hear more, see more, um, I, I know you've got a lot of different outlets. Tell our listeners where they can get more of Dr. Kristen Dumay's writings and thoughts. Sure. The book should be available everywhere, online and in local bookstores. And I'm on Twitter at KK Dumay, which is K-K-D-U-M-E-Z, like Dumez. And I have a website, KristenDumay.com, where I post a lot of my writings. Yes, and and I'll go ahead and tell you, when I was uh, working on booking for the show, I looked at your website for – I didn't even know a college professor could have a website that looked that solid. It would be in the top um, – you know, 20% of top-shelf, well-funded, you know, political candidate websites. Um, it is really an amazing well piece of work. Well, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> well, whoever did that had a great budget, uh, or, or they did a lot with the budget because it's an excellent, excellent website. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Well, Dr. Dumay, we, we thank you for coming on. And it's my understanding that somewhere down the road you may write another political book and we can have you on again. Is that correct? Yes. I've got a couple projects I'm working on. The next one in the shoot is called Live, Laugh, Love, and it is a cultural history of white Christian womanhood and how it in- intersects with politics. Yes. Well, we may have to watch for that release, uh, read the book, and then get you back on in the future would be wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. All right. That was uh, Dr. Kristen Dumay. Definitely um, read or listen to her book and, and find her on these sources. She's really an incredibly knowledgeable source on where you know evangelical Christianity and politics intersect. Um, Catherine and Tim, I want to thank y'all for letting me handle all the questions. I'd listen to the book. I'm in religion and politics right now, and y'all were nice enough to just let me um, have with. Um, I, but I feel like I, I got to get y'all's thoughts. Uh, Catherine, any thoughts on what Dr. Dumay had to say? I thought it was very interesting and uh, a, a different perspective than I sometimes have about evangelicals and politics and evangelicals in general. Um, and I, I um, applaud her for um, her work in this, in these areas, especially in Grand Rapids, Michigan at Calvin university, which is, you know, those are 
that's a conservative area and uh, uh you know I used to live there so um so I I applaud her for doing that work in in that environment I imagine that she has some interesting stories about it so uh thank yes. you for bringing her I'm looking I'm I'm actually going to um get that book and read it I appreciate the the information well, Catherine and all our listeners in Georgia, if you have a um, Georgia Library card, a Pines card, I checked it out on um, Georgia Overdrive because, um, you know, I get a lot of my books from the Brooklyn Library, which I'm a pay to get a member of. But that one was from Georgia, and so um, it, it, that's one way you can get it among others. Um, Tim, your thoughts? Yeah, uh, they – Christian evangelicals are such uh, an integral part now of the Republican Party. Uh, they pretty much vote as a block, 80 to 85 percent in most elections now with the Republicans. And it's good to see someone uh, like her uh, taking uh, such a group on uh, breaking them down, and, uh, you know, I, I'm going to do like Catherine. I, I'm going to get that book and read it because that all really sounded interesting, and it did uh, leave me with just a little bit of a different perspective, uh, some things I had previously thought. Yes, and we didn't even touch on the John Wayne part of it, and um, I know you may be more of the – grew up more of with the Westerns, um, than I did. I was a little uh, past that um, time period in American media. Yeah. Is he well, calling us old? No. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> so I was going, going with that. Um, well, let, let's get back into our topic. Uh, we, we, we talked about Julia Letlow, that she um, won with, without a runoff, and, and maybe she's going to be a different kind of um, Republican politician than some of the, the ladies we mentioned in the interview with Dr. Dumay. Uh, hopefully she won't follow the footsteps of um, uh, Marjorie Green. hopefully. Um, and so she'll use that PhD from University of South Florida and be more thoughtful and diplomatic. Um, but let's go now move down into the um, southern part of the state. I guess it goes all the way from the state capital in Baton Rouge down into Louisiana, it's uh, a historically black district that um, has been represented by, I guess, William Jefferson, Cedric Richmond, uh, among others. Um, and so it was when Cedric Richmond um, went to work in the Biden administration, it became an open seat, and it had multiple candidates, including two state senators, um, Karen Carter, um, and I'm trying to think of her uh, her other name, um, and then Troy Peterson. Carter. Peterson, thank you. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, it, it was a trick to me because I, back in the, back a good 10, 12 years ago when she ran for both state senate and ran for this exact uh, congressional um, seat against Cedric Richmond, I did her campaign website, and she was just Karen Carter at the time. So it's now Karen Carter and Peterson, which I guess helped differentiate from one of our opponents, Troy Carter. Troy Carter uh, had more votes. Karen Carter finished second. They're going to a runoff. Um, Tim, your thoughts on uh, the first round of this race? Well, uh, Tony Carter uh, has himself run twice 
for this seat and failed both times. Uh, he was endorsed by Cedric Richmond um, in this particular race. Um, Karen Carter Peterson seems to be pretty stoked about this result and that, you know, 64% uh, of the voters voted for somebody other than than Carter, and that was with the endorsement of Cedric Richmond. Uh, so she is feeling pretty good that she may win this thing. Um, and uh, I've seen this type of arrangement before where someone would get in the mid-30s who was a heavy favorite to win, and then that would basically be what they got. And so it's going to be interesting to see if he can build on that at all or if she is going to be able to pull in uh, votes from the other candidates uh, to defeat him. Uh, but if I were him, I, I, I wouldn't feel just super confident about this result, uh, especially with uh, – the backing that he had from some of the power players down there. Yes, and I think uh, Stacey Abrams actually endorsed Karen Carter and Peterson. So they had endorsements both ways, and they were known commodities. Um, and so we'll have to see what happens out of that. Catherine, any predictions on who might win that runoff? Well, you know, I think we often find that whoever comes out ahead in a in a primary and then has to go into a runoff that it doesn't always help them. Um, as Tim said, you know, a large percentage of people didn't vote for that, uh, the person with the most votes. So um, like always in a runoff, they've got a lot of work to do. They've got to reach out to their voters. They've got to, you know, try to um, persuade the people who voted for other candidates who are no longer on the ticket to vote for them and then do a really big GOTV event and GOTV effort because we also know that runoff or that runoff voter runoff voting numbers usually plummet. So uh, I hope that they, I mean, I'm, I have a good friend who lives in um, New Orleans and she's a, a supporter of Karen, whatever her name is. And uh, so Peterson. I'm, I'm rooting yeah. for her. I'm rooting for her, but, you know, I can't vote for her, and so. Yeah, and, and honestly, both of them are, it's, you know, so I think they tried to frame uh, one candidate as more establishment and one as less, but both are in the state Senate. One was on the city council, one uh, was in the state house, uh, one had, um, uh, was the state chair of the Louisiana Democratic Party. They're both pretty well connected. Um, and so I wouldn't, you know, neither one of them are like super outsider insurrectionist candidates. They're both, um, you know, establishment figures with uh, lots of backing. So it will be, you know, kind of who runs the better campaign. I would be interested to see like which consultants are, are working with who, because sometimes that matters a lot, particularly in an in-state um, campaign like Louisiana can be. Um, well, I think we've got about five minutes, so let's get into this. Um, Florida, most fascinating state for politics, I think, going today. Ron DeSantis 
pretty much has just thumbed his nose at almost every guideline. And he's a, and he, the governor of a state that has a very, very elderly population, a very densely populated state, and yet he's treated it like he's in Idaho or the Dakotas. Um, and you would think that that would cause him to be quite unpopular, and some people rightfully so have criticized him. But the polling we've seen, if it's correct, if he were up for re-election today, he would win re-election. Tim, why is Ron DeSantis so seemingly Teflon after he's mishandled this pandemic so much? Well, he has been able to bend the narrative in a very possible way for himself. Um, he he has made the point that Florida has statistically fared no worse or, or better than a lot of states now. Uh, when he says they fared better than California, he's actually wrong about that. Uh, California's population is about double that of Florida's. And, and their rate of uh, everything associated with COVID from infections to hospitalizations is, is below that of Florida. Uh, what he appears to be doing with this tax, I think, I believe he it, it ain't about re-election, I don't think. I think he appears to be strongly testing the presidential waters for 2024. If, if if we've seen the polls that show him as the leader, if Trump is not in the race, hey, he's seen the same polls. Um, and, but, but by using the tact he's doing, by keeping the media at bay, not allowing a lot of questions and this and that and the other thing, uh, it has driven a narrative in Florida where many think he handled the pandemic better than most governors. I, I don't, of course. This spring break thing that's going on right now is just a disaster, and these people are going to carry this thing, you know, back to their home states, and they already have when they vacation down there. Uh, his schedule is closely guarded, if you watch, uh, to prevent protesters for instance. They don't want them showing up anywhere. So uh, he's in very a very controlled type thing. Uh, like I said, he avoids the press, but he gets very positive press, which is odd. Like the Associated Press and, and Politico just this week just wrote these glowing articles about, uh, oh, we were so wrong about him, blah, 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 blah. He's Trump, guys, but without the big mouth, the brash attitude, all of that. He is much more disciplined. He's a Yale graduate, a combat veteran, a native Floridian with the picture-perfect family. We've got to keep our eye on this guy. We, we should not underestimate him. Yes. Catherine, your thoughts on why he's seemingly immune to uh, what should have damaged him politically? Well, I think um, as, while we look at it um, that he has made so many mistakes and that, you know, we look at the, their numbers and they're bad, but I think the people in Florida like to have their bars open. They like to, they like to you know, party and they like to be free to do what they want, obviously, because they still support the governor. So 
I think that's part of it. Part of it, I think Tim is absolutely right. He's been able to control the narrative a lot uh, by not speaking very much publicly and by keeping his schedule tight and all those things, I think, um, helped him to control the narrative. Uh, but I think a lot of it is just that people are glad that the that Florida is open, as we say, and and uh, that gives him. I mean, I guess they don't care that people are dying and that people are getting COVID. And then also, mm-hmm. they they have been really open about the vaccinations too. I mean, they were giving vaccinations to everybody, from what I could gather. And people were driving there from Florida, from Georgia to get vaccinations before uh, some of the eligibility opened up this week. Yeah. And I think we're to the point now where all 50 states may start opening it up to whoever wants it because, you know, the Biden administration has gotten the vaccine out there far faster. And um, there's just a, you know, chunk of the population that just doesn't want to be vaccinated. So why not move on to the age groups that do? right now and then hopefully more people will buy in towards the end and that's what's so sad about the spring break is because we're right at the end and if we do this thing right we can have a summer like we want we just have a little bit longer i mean we can see the finish line no matter how you feel about it um the finish line's in sight we just have to be disciplined for a little while longer and we'll all get there, and we can all enjoy it, and we don't have to be partisan about anything. We can just get back to normal, um, and that's what's so unfortunate about, you know, what's going on with the spring break. Well, um, well, again, thanks to Dr. Kristen Dumay, and next week we're going to have as our guest uh, Dr. Magic Wade, and she's going to talk to us about Alaska, Minnesota, and possibly Illinois politics if we can get to it. Until then, been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, y'all. Guys. Good night. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom? With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.